Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. This is the HPP Podcast Editor, Arden Castle, and each week we explore a new topic related to the Health Promotion Practice Journal. Whether it's demystifying publishing, breaking down a new article, or discussing public health-related topics with our editorial board members, we hope you enjoy each week's exploration into health promotion practice. Hello and welcome to the HPP podcast. My name is Cassandra Wynn and I am a contributor to the HPP focus issue on Indigenous food sovereignty. I am an assistant professor of cooperative extension at the University of California Davis in the Department of Nutrition. My work focuses on community nutrition and bridging the gap between what we know and what we do about food insecurity in the U.S. Today, I am joined by Tara Madri, lead author of Food Security and Food Sovereignty, The Difference Between Surviving and Thriving, as well as contributor to several other articles in this special issue. Before we get started, I'd like to ask Tara to introduce herself and share where she is calling in from. Bonjour, everyone. My name is Tara Madri. I'm an enrolled citizen of the Sault Ste. Marie Nation of Chippewa Indians. I'm currently a PhD student at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health where I'm in the Social Behavioral Interventions Program. Today, I'm calling in for my homelands, or Bawating, the place of the rapids, or what you may know as Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Thanks for having me. Great. Welcome, Tara. So I'd love to expand on that brief introduction that you've just provided and ask you if you could tell me a little bit more about yourself and specifically how you got involved in Indigenous food sovereignty. Yeah, thanks, Cassandra. So as I mentioned, I'm a citizen of the Sault Ste. Marie Nation of Chippewa Indians, which is in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where I now live. But I actually grew up downstate as an urban Native person, like many Native people. I lived in an urban area most of my life, so I lived in the metro Detroit area, and my family had moved down when my dad was a teenager. But prior to that, my family history and really our family legacy really lies in commercial fishing. That's what my family did as a way to feed ourselves financially, as well as literally feed ourselves. So my family has a strong history of that commercial fishing on the Great Lakes, as well as my dad's always been a hunter. So I've been familiar with that sort of subsistence lifestyle most of my life. But I really didn't get into nutrition and food work until I was in my undergrad at Oakland University, where I studied exercise science. And my grandmother got diagnosed with diabetes. And so I became really interested in how do I help her manage this disease? And, you know, she'd go to appointments and we get all this nutrition information and wouldn't really understand what was going on. So I started taking a lot of nutrition classes and eventually did an internship with the Great Lakes Intertribal Epidemiology Center, where I became really interested in research as well as community-driven health initiatives. So I ended up working at Detroit American Indian Health and Family Services, where I worked on a sister program to their food sovereignty program, which was called Sacred Roots. And through that work, I really got my first exposure to like gardening and subsistence in that way at the community level and became really interested in how do we document, measure, and evaluate these studies in a way that can continue to promote the work that we know is going well in community, but maybe we don't have data to back up. So that led me to doing my graduate work in nutrition and now in, in my PhD program. Thank you so much for sharing that. It really provides a illustration of what food sovereignty might look like in both personal practice as well as in promoting this work in communities. And for folks that might not be as familiar with this terminology of, around food sovereignty, would you be able to share a little bit about how it's defined? 
Absolutely. We often hear food sovereignty defined as really this idea of having control or agency in your food system, and often really at the community level and the right of communities to control and define how their foods are produced and available to them and how they're consumed. But for me, it's less about this idea of having control or agency in our foodways or food systems and more about this idea of being a good relative through a stewardship of our, our foods, really. And so through food sovereignty and through my life views, I'm in relationship with not just other people, but with plants, animals, the water, and the landways that feed me and the animals around me. And essentially what that means is that the needs of one species don't outweigh the others. We're part of a larger web of a food system, and humans aren't at the center of that food system. And so for me, food sovereignty is really this idea that we're part of something much larger than ourselves. And it's our duty as the original stewards of this land to cultivate balanced and healthy relationships with all aspects of our food system so that we can all continue to thrive. And by all, I don't just mean humans. Again, I mean the land, the water, the plants, the animals. And when you're talking about these balanced and healthy relationships that you're cultivating, could you share more about what that looks like in practice? Yeah, absolutely. I'm an Ojibwe woman or Anishinaabe woman. And so for me, part of creating good relationships through food is not just you know, being grateful for the food and knowing that I love this food, but knowing that the food loves me and the food needs me too. So when, for example, minoman or wild rice is one of our most sacred foods. It's one of our staple foods as Ojibwe people. You might hear a lot of Ojibwe people saying they're people of the wild rice. And so when we think about that being in a relationship through a food system, it doesn't just mean that I eat that wild rice. It means that I'm part of not just going to get that food and processing it, but part of our process with harvesting wild rice also ensures a continuity of that food source for future years. So we allow, you know, rice to fall into the water so that it reseeds. So this year was actually a really good example of sort of taking that relational worldview. So in past years, I've wild rice to collect food to process and to, you know, feed people with. But where I live now in the St. Mary's River, we're working more on restoration of that species because there's not a lot of wild rice around here. So this year, actually, instead of ricing to gather rice, I actually raced in the opposite way of I was going out and planting wild rice. So that's one example of how I sort of think about the relationships and the ebbs and flows in food ways and how I sort of manifest that. So I think about indigenous food sovereignty. It's a term that's really used to describe the efforts of American Indian, Alaska Native, Native Hawaiian, and other indigenous communities to revitalize our food ways and to strengthen the food ways that are built on our value systems. And it's also really important to recognize that the foodways of indigenous peoples are the original foodways of this land, and they have so much to teach us about living well in a place, but they're also one of the best examples we have of this idea of survivance, not just surviving, but continuing to thrive. Our foodways existed well before colonizers or settlers set foot on this land, and our indigenous food sovereignty efforts are not a reaction to this colonial food systems or the traumas that have been forced on us. But rather, it's like a resurgence of our ways of knowing and being in relationship through food. So to summarize all this, to me, food sovereignty is really living out my original instructions or creation instructions to be a good steward of my homelands. And that takes place in many ways, like I mentioned, like wild racing, for example. But it also means that I try my best to take care of my environment, to feed other people, and to cultivate relationships and really positive emotions like joy through our food ways. Thank you so much for sharing that kind of definition and even expanding to provide examples of the ways in which food sovereignty is practiced in your own life and in your own community. 
So in thinking about the focus issue for health promotion practice, I want to draw people's attention to this conceptual model that's being presented as one of the articles. Could you maybe, for folks that haven't seen it yet, could you maybe describe this model and talk a little bit about how you envision it being used? Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited to share about this model. So the model we present in this paper conceptualizes the health impacts of food sovereignty initiatives and food sovereignty efforts of communities through a lens of relationality, like I mentioned before. This model is unique in that it emphasizes the importance of relationships in promoting and maintaining health through food and nutrition efforts. The model shows the proximal or more close impacts of food sovereignty movements, which might include things like increasing exposure to healthy ancestral and traditional foods, facilitating cultural connection, as well as providing opportunities for people to connect intergenerationally. Where, when you think about the distal or farther out impacts, those are things that we put in the model more like self-efficacy around food, people having the skills and knowledge to implement food practices, improved mental health, so for example, decreased depression or anxiety, and lastly, improved diet quality, which I think is a big indicator that we think about a lot in this nutrition and food systems work. It's important to think about the proximal and distal impacts of food sovereignty initiatives. It's important to measure both. A lot of times in health research, people are really concerned about what I consider to be the more distal impacts of a lot of our interventions. So they're concerned about, for example, maybe cardiovascular disease or type two diabetes. But along the path to those, there's a lot of other important indicators that are important to think about. For example, are people connecting with food in a more emotionally close way? Or are they eating foods that are important to them, regardless of whether or not their cardiovascular or diabetes risk has changed? So it's important to measure both things because it provides a more holistic picture of what our food systems efforts look like. That's really helpful to hear. And I imagine that this model can direct communities or professionals who are interested in monitoring these proximal and distal effects. In thinking about that perspective of folks that might be working on food sovereignty initiatives or interested in initiatives close to them, do you have any thoughts about how you might go about holistically measuring these proximal and distal effects? Do you have suggestions for ways in which these measurements can be taken or these changes can be monitored over time? Absolutely. I think one of the first answers, and maybe the easiest one, is our communities have always had the solutions to our health problems and always have had the answers, in my opinion. So I think a lot of times it's thinking about the community. What does the community think is important in this initiative to measure? Or the people who have implemented this curriculum or this sort of program before found to be important? So for example, instead of just thinking about maybe an economic indicator of food sovereignty, a food sovereignty farm and how they're performing economically, also considering other frameworks. Like for example, are there relational economies or are people trading food that maybe wouldn't fit in that economic framework, but still is important to the overall success of the initiative. So it's important that when we evaluate things, we think about like whose knowledges and frameworks we're sort of privileging in the way we evaluate and measure things that are important. So it's important to think about what does the community think is important about this food system initiative and what is what is important for the funder maybe. So for example, I think funders are often very caught in this disease-focused model where they want indicators of diet, indicators of certain diseases. 
But instead, those things are really hard to measure. And they're often what I mentioned before, those distal effects. They take a long time for things to reach those. And our communities really didn't think about things in a disease-centered way. We often thought about them in a relational way. And so, for example, like I mentioned, the wild rice before. So wild rice, there's ebbs and flows in the ability we have to gather that food source. And instead of saying, oh, no, there's a decline in wild rice sort of yield this year, that's a bad thing. Instead, also understanding that, well, maybe it's actually a good thing that we're letting that food source rest and we have more venison this year than we did previous years. So that's an example of like food sources. But at the individual level, you could also think about, instead of just thinking about diet quality, you could think about other indicators. Like are people eating foods with others? Are they sharing food? Are they connecting to others socially through food? Or are they eating in a way that is maybe more reflective of their cultural values rather than an indicator of maybe diet quality? It sounds almost like an indicator of diet quality, but from a cultural lens, right? Instead of looking at things from nutritional content, looking at whether or not they support someone's individual or cultural values and norms. So, so interesting to hear about. And I'm sure that the measures that people might take to evaluate their programming might be just as unique as the diversity that we see in Indigenous communities broadly as well, that they may reflect that diversity and uniqueness too. So listeners might be interested to hear from your perspective why you think Indigenous food sovereignty is capturing so much attention lately and why we're having this conversation and have this special issue. Yeah, absolutely. I think in the last few years, we've seen a lot more interest in food sovereignty and even people using the term food sovereignty more frequently. And I think part of that has to do with our context. So in 2023, we're, I think, about three years out, maybe two and a half years out from that pandemic. And that really highlighted a lot of the inequities in our food system. And so people became very concerned with this idea of who does get to control our food system and where do these decisions come from and how do I have a role in those? So I think that drove a lot of the attention. I think it's really important that we continue to talk about these because we think about food sovereignty from an indigenous perspective, it's not just about who controls the food system and who has access, but instead it's about the relationships that are part of that food system. And it also uplifts indigenous ways of knowing and being and whether or not you're indigenous, Indigenous peoples have lived here since time immemorial and have a lot to teach the world about what it means to live in a certain place and to live well. Also, as Indigenous peoples, it's important that our ways of knowing and being are centered in the approaches to defining and conceptualizing health and wellness. This is what many people call epistemic injustices, which is a really fancy way of saying that there's injustices of knowledge. So when our values as Indigenous peoples and our ways of knowing and being and our very lived experiences are not included or acknowledged in the ways in which we define, conceptualize, and measure nutrition and food systems-related health outcomes, it provides a very narrow and biased view of our food ways that's often very deficit-based. It looks at what's wrong with our systems instead of what's going right. So in order to fully address and understand the food ways priorities of Indigenous peoples and peoples generally, it's important that we think about define and measure food systems in ways that reflect the beauty and strength of all of our communities, but especially Indigenous communities. Great. And thinking about that, I'm curious what you envision are the potential impacts of more communities and groups using this model of food sovereignty. What might be the ultimate effects of increasing 
numbers and kind of strength of indigenous food sovereignty initiatives as well as evidence of their impact. Yeah, I think it's really important that we define and measure and evaluate this amazing community-driven work in a way that really reflects the entire story of these communities, food systems works and these food sovereignty initiatives, rather than just the direct little narrow indicators of health that funders often want. And it's really important that we do this because this directly impacts the narratives that are told about our communities. For example, as indigenous communities were often talked about as at risk, as underserved, as under-resourced communities. And while some of that may be true, we also have a lot of strength and we have a lot of really great things going on about our food systems. So we hope that this framework can be of use to American Indian, Alaska Native, Native Hawaiian, and other communities as they work to revitalize, strengthen, and grow their foodways. And as also as a way that they can maybe push back or use as they tell the story of their food system initiatives to incorporate some of these more positive or maybe more proximal or distal outcomes of these food sovereignty initiatives into their evaluations rather than the more narrow indicators we often see used. That is so true, Tara. I think that it's important to think about how stories are told and half of that is who is telling the story. So I so appreciate you sharing with us your perspectives and a little bit about your own personal story as it relates to indigenous food sovereignty. And at this time, I'd like to really thank you for your time and for joining me today for this podcast. If listeners would like to find out more about the papers that we've discussed, they can access them at the HPP website. And if you follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn, you'll see when new papers and podcast episodes are available. We ask that you please help us in promoting this work by sharing the links widely among your own networks, among others that you might think are interested. And at the HPP website, you can also sign up for new article alerts so that you know whenever new articles are published on any of the topics that you are interested in. All of the links that I've mentioned above are gonna be in the show notes for this episode. And I wanna thank again, our guest Tara Madri, as well as Arden Castle, the editorial director and our podcast editor for editing this episode. I am the guest host, Cassandra Wynn. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and you'll find more episodes of the HPP podcast available soon. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know by tagging us or responding to our promotions on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can also find out more about the Health Promotion Practice Journal from Sage or Sophie's websites. All of these links can be found on the podcast website at anchor.fm forward slash health dash promotion dash practice. Take care and have a great day.